The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist, a columnist, and a columnist for The Messenger in Washington, D.C. My company, Bannon Communication Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and uh, the people behind the politics and po- uh, policies that make our great nation forward. Uh, with us today, as always, is our crack executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, who makes sure the show runs on time and stays online. We've got two great guests today. In the first half hour, Uh, CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, joins us to discuss the Ukrainian counteroffensive against the Russian invaders. And then we'll talk about the uh, upcoming budget battle between the House and Senate on the Department of Defense budget. Then in the second half hour, Kimberly Scott, the publisher of Demlist, uh, joins us to discuss uh, the uh, mo- recent uh, campaign finance reports for the multitude of presidential candidates, and also the role of a potential third-party spoiler uh, sponsored by the No Labels Group in the 2024 presidential race. But before we get to our first guest, uh, we're going to hear from uh, Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken, who was on uh, Fareed Shakar's Ch- uh, show on CNN yesterday, talking about the Ukraine counteroffensive. Tell us what you can uh, a sense of what is going on in the counteroffensive that Ukraine is attempting with Russia. Mm. The, so far, the reports seem to be it is very slow and very tough going. Well, first, Farid, put this in perspective. In terms of what Russia sought to achieve, what Putin sought to achieve, they've already failed. They've already lost. The the objective was to erase Ukraine from the map, to eliminate its independence, its sovereignty, to subsume it into Russia. That failed a long time ago. Now Ukraine is in a battle to get back uh, more of the land that Russia seized from it. It's already taken back about 50% of what was initially seized. Now they're in a very hard fight. Uh, to take back uh, to take back more. These are still relatively early days of the counteroffensive. It is tough. The Russians have put in place strong defenses, but uh, I'm convinced that with the equipment and support they've received now from more than 50 countries, with the training uh, that their forces have gotten, and many of the forces who've gotten that training have not yet been put fully into this fight, and maybe more than anything else, with the fact that unlike the Russians, the Ukrainians are fighting for their land, for their future, for their country, for their freedom, I think that is the decisive element, and that's going to play out. But it will not play out over the next week or two. We're still looking, I think, at several months. That was uh, that was Secretary of State Anthony Blinken uh, talking to Farid Shakara on his CNN Sunday show. 
Our guest in this half hour is uh, CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton, uh, U.S. Air Force retired. He is the founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global com companies and organizations. He founded the company after serving in the U.S. Air Force uh, for 26 years as an intelligence officer. His Twitter handle is at Cedric Layton, that's C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N, and his website is CedricLayton.com. Welcome back, uh, to, welcome back to Deadline DC, uh, Cedric. You're one of my uh, favorite frequent flyers. Uh, we always have a very interesting discussion with you. Uh, let's start. Uh, at, uh, would you like to comment on what uh, Secretary of uh, State Anthony Blinken said about the uh, Russian, uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive against the Russian invaders? Yes, sure, Brad. The, uh, the a lot of what Secretary Blinken said is right on target. And uh, when you count the land that the Ukrainians took back uh, when the Russians came in around Kiev back at the very beginning of this offensive, so we're talking in the February, March uh, 2022 uh, timeframe, when you count the land that the Russians first seized around Kiev and around Kharkiv and in several other areas, uh, it is absolutely true that uh, the Ukrainians have regained about 50% of the land that the Russians took from them initially. Now, having said that, um, the progress in recent months has been a lot slower uh, as this Ukrainian counteroffensive started to get rolling. And in fact, uh, since June, uh, they've taken about 74 square miles of land. And of that, about 13 and a half square miles is around the uh, much contested uh, city of Bakhmut, uh, which we've been talking about quite a bit there in eastern Ukraine. So there is progress on the Ukrainian side, but it is slow progress, much slower than it was in the initial phases of the war when they started to uh, roll back the Russian onslaught, and much slower than you had in the summertime and in the late summer, early fall period of last year. So it's a different war environment, uh, but the Russians also have had an opportunity to dig themselves in, and now it's going to be a lot tougher to uh, for the Ukrainians to get the Russians out of the entrenched positions that they've dug themselves into. Okay, uh, well, let me uh, ask you uh, this as a follow-up. Uh, it sounds to me uh, like uh, to retrieve the rest of their territory uh given the slow progress of the recent offensive uh we're in for uh, a long uh and expensive fight uh and my question is do you think uh public opinion in the united states uh for first of all let me ask you about public opinion in the united states is going to withstand uh what looks to be a long slow slog uh trying to regain ukrainian territorial integrity yeah it's it's going to definitely come down to whether or not the american public and the publics of western europe uh, are going to uh, stay in the fight in, in terms of their support for it. Now, there are a lot of positive signs. There's still a majority of the population 
that believes in uh, Ukraine and believes uh, in the fight uh, from the Ukrainian standpoint. Uh, so there is certainly hope that this uh, can continue. But uh, democracies, uh, if they don't, uh, you know, convert to a win this quick uh, strategy, uh, they risk losing popular support in these kinds of uh, kinds of conflicts. And so that becomes a huge issue, Brad, that uh, we're going to have to face. Uh, but uh, it's a bit different in this particular case because popular support uh, seems to be relatively solid at this particular point in time. Okay, well, this is good. This uh is uh, a precursor. Uh, the federal budget uh, has to be approved uh, by September 31st, uh, which is only two months away. Uh, actually, yeah, pretty much a little more than two months. Uh, if the federal budget isn't approved, we uh, face a long government shutdown because there's a great deal of disagreement uh, on the nature of the federal government. First, uh, Repub House Republicans want to cut back the budget drastically, especially in domestic spending, but they also uh, want to reduce the military funding or at least a part of it that goes to Ukrainian aid. Now, my sense is the Senate is that you have there the Senate as a whole, including, you know, the Senate uh, uh, minority leader, Mitch McConnell uh, and Lindsay Senator Lindsey Graham uh, are do not approve the uh, House proposed cuts in military spending. Uh, so the defense budget may have friendly hearing in the Senate, but even if the budget uh, passes the Senate, it has to go back, it will have to go back to the House for approval. And many Repub Republicans, especially in the Freedom Caucus, and also some progressive Democrats in the House, uh, aren't happy with the uh, size of military spending. So the question is, uh, do you, how do you think the, the budget, especially the defense budget and the money for the Ukraine, is going to fare uh, during the midst of this uh, budget hearing? Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens, uh, Brad, when it comes to the defense budget. I think in the end, uh, aid to Ukraine will pass and it will probably be increased uh, to some degree. Uh, but there are also going to be some stringent uh, housekeeping measures and oversight measures okay, and so mechanisms. Colonel, I'm going to have to interrupt you because we're getting up to a break. Uh, we'll be back with more of Deadline DC with our guest CNN military analyst Cedric Layton right after this quick break. Uh, we'll be right back for our video listeners, but we have to give our radio listeners a vacation, a very short one. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. My guest in this half hour is Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, he's a military analyst that you've probably seen on CNN. Uh, by the way, I want to remind our radio listeners that if they'd like to watch us as well as listen to us, uh, they can do that by uh, going to the video uh, at twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon or the video on facebook.com front slash deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. 
before we went to break, we were talking about uh, the uh, impasse uh, between the uh, Russian uh, mercenary force, I guess they're a mercenary force, uh, who had a, a brief revolt against the Russian Federation and President Vladimir Putin. Uh, now they're in Belarus training, I guess, uh, to go back to Ukraine at some point. Now, let me ask you a question about that, Colonel Layton. It seems to me if I'm if I was Vladimir Putin and thank God I'm not, uh, he would have mixed feelings about sending the Wagner group back into combat in Ukraine. On one hand, he probably needs them right now uh, because they seem to be his best fighting force. Uh, and Ukraine is mounting a counteroffensive. But on the other hand, do you want, if you're Putin, do you want to send a trained military group that always has already proved it's a rogue, rogue force back into combat? Yeah, in many cases you don't. Of course, what Putin wants spread is chaos. Uh, he loves the idea of chaos, especially if that chaos is visited upon the Ukrainian population. So the Wagner Group is extremely useful, uh, to use a very clinical term here, uh, to really propagate Russian aims, and those aims are to sow chaos within the Ukrainian population and to create uh, that division within uh, that country so that uh, they find it more difficult to fight the war against the Russians. Uh, so, you know, in essence, Putin is constantly playing with fire, but what he wants to do is he wants to bring in a fighting force uh, into Ukraine that uh, is not going to be challenging him uh, for power. Now, we saw how well that worked out uh, back in June when uh, the Wagner Group uh, marched on Moscow. Uh, and so what uh, what Putin is basically doing is he's trying to uh, turn their energies in a way that uh, will allow him, Putin, to keep power, uh, but also to keep the Wagner Group occupied uh, in other pursuits, and Ukraine would be one of those other pursuits. Okay. Does, you know, the brief revolt of the Wagner Group in June, does that suggest anything about uh, uh President Putin's uh, hold on power in Russia. It seems to me, you know, somebody might have got the thought, well, you know, these folks, uh, you know, tried, uh, made an attempt uh, to march to Moscow. Uh, maybe that suggests, uh, you know, Putin is vulnerable uh, and, you know, some other general or somebody uh, might give this, you know, uh, an attempted coup against Putin to try. Is, is that true or is that uh, wishful thinking? Oh, it's, it's absolutely possible. So I wouldn't uh, put it in the wishful thinking category, at least not just yet. Uh, the one thing to keep in mind, mind though, Brad, is that Putin is an extremely resilient political operator. Uh, and he's uh, not only been trained in politics uh, by actually doing the job, kind of on-the-job training, uh, but he's also been trained as an intelligence operator. And uh, by that, uh, he's somebody who's willing to use force to stay in power. Uh, and in this particular 
situation. I think what Putin is looking at is uh, to find a way uh, so that he can hold on to power, uh, use the Wagner Group, leverage the Wagner Group for the things that it uh, brings to him that benefit him. Uh, but he also wants to keep the Wagner Group to some extent at arm's length to make sure that they don't get too powerful. So what he's trying to do is balance all the political forces uh, that are arrayed around him and control them uh, by, in essence, creating chaos among them and creating a team of rivals, uh, team being a de-emphasized word in this particular case. Okay, uh, we're going to a break now. Uh, we'll be right back with more of Deadline DC. Okay. Okay, four minutes. Okay. Uh, okay, uh, let me ask you about uh, a uh, issue uh, that has uh, come up uh, military issue that's come up uh, playing a role in domestic politics. Uh, right now, uh, Senator Tom Tuberville, who is a senator, Republican senator from Alabama, very, uh, very conservative uh, senator from Alabama, uh, has uh, put a hold. And that's the great thing about being a senator. You can stop any one senator can stop all sorts of things in the Senate. And he's put a hold on mil military uh, promotions uh, until uh, the Pentagon revises its uh, position on allowing service people uh, to uh, travel, uh, get travel expenses for abortions. Uh, what one has to do with the other, I do not know. Uh, but could you comment on this, Cedric? Sure, Brad. The the real problem is, uh, you know, what Senator Tuberville is doing is he's using the military as kind of a cudgel uh, to get his way in domestic political issues. So what the Defense Department is doing right now, their policy is that they can that they will allow people to travel from a state that does not allow abortions to a state that does allow abortions if they are going to, uh, if they seek to undergo that, that medical procedure. Uh, so what Senator Tuberville is doing is he's uh, working to prevent that because he doesn't believe in abortions. Uh, that being said, what he's uh, leveraging here is the entire Pentagon promotion process for all of the senior people. So what you end up having is you end up having a a uh, bunch of people in very senior positions from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, to even further down the line, basically about 250, uh, as much as as many as 275 flag or general officer rank officers who are going to be prevented from taking their new assignments uh, because he's in essence putting a hold on their promotions and the nominations process for those promotions. So that means the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs to replace General Milley, the Air Force, who's currently the Air Force Chief of Staff, uh, won't be confirmed until after this is resolved. Uh, President Biden has uh, just submitted the name of the Vice Chief of Naval Operations, who happens to be a woman, uh, to be the new Chief of Naval Operations. And Admiral Franchetti would also be somebody who is in this category. So what Tuberville is doing is he's preventing, in essence, what amounts to the coach of all of the different uh, teams that the military is composed of. He's preventing those coaches from taking office. And the reason I mentioned coaches is because that's what Tuberville was before he became a senator. Auburn he was University. 
That's right. Exactly. And uh, because he he was in that position, you would think he would understand that it's very important to have a coach in a position of influence in the position that they're supposed to be in. But he's preventing that from happening and it's adversely affecting military. Yeah, you would think so. Alabama has a reputation as a very pro-military state. Unfortunately, uh, Colonel Layton, that's all we have all all the time we have. Thanks very much for joining us. Hopefully next time we can get you on with uh, President Putin since you're both trained intelligence officers and you can have (laughs) a wicked cool debate. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC after these messages. Welcome back to Deadline DC, Brad Bannon. I want to remind uh, radio listeners that if they want to watch us uh, during the radio break in the middle of the segment, uh, they can watch us on twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon or on facebook.com front slash deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. Uh, Before we move on, we're going to play this clip. We're going to talk about uh, the third party possibility of the third party presidential race uh, in this half hour with Kimberly Scott, the publisher of Demlist. Uh, We're going to play this clip first. The co-founder of The Third Way, Matt Bennett, and executive director of MoveOn.org, Rona Epting, described tickets of no labels third party ticket on the 2024 presidential election what do you tell those voters about a no labels ticket i tell them that it is an incredibly bad idea and they should stay away from it like it is the plague how much do we know about the people behind no labels and the people funding that organization well we first of all i'll say we don't know enough but what we have found out is not that promising. It's very concerning. Um, We know that the very notorious Harlan Crow, the right-wing donor to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, has given to no labels. We know that donors associated with Jared Kushner and Ron DeSantis have given to no labels. When you look at their polling, you look at their strategy, you look at the facts at hand, there is no way you could deduce that their intention is truly what they're saying it is, which is to advance democracy and give voters a choice. Yes, we want more choice in this country. Yes, we want democracy to thrive in this country. This is not the strategic way to do it. And the only reason this is actually a threat is because there's some donors in a room that they've convinced this is a smart strategy, or there are donors in a room that actually want to sway the election to Donald Trump. Okay, we're talking about third-party presidential spoilers uh, in this segment of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, Those uh, were uh, co-founder of The Third Way, Matt Bennett, and the executive director of MoveOn.org, Rona uh, Epting, discussing the possibility of a third-party candidate. Our guests in this half hour uh, oh, I'm going to read a little rant before we get to our guest. Uh, if Joe Manchin or any other prominent candidate runs on the no labels ticket, it represents a major road bump obstructing the president's reelection. 
A poll conducted in June for NBC News demonstrated that an independent third-party candidacy could seriously undermine Democratic fortunes in 2022. The bad news for President Biden is that more than two out of every five registered voters were receptive to a third-party effort. Even worse news for the president is that a majority of voters in core Democratic Democratic, Democratic groups, including African-Americans, Latinos, young voters, and primary supporters of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were more open to the idea than any other group in the electorate. No Labels has already raised more than $70 million from conservative high rollers who see the potential for reaping havoc on the Biden re-election campaign. Uh, many of these funders for the organization are generous contributors to GOP campaigns. One of the founders of No Labels is Harlan Crow, who is Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas' sugar daddy. No labels could mean no re-election for Joe Biden and open the door to a second term for the former failed president, Donald Trump. Our guest in this half hour is Kimberly Scott. Kim is the publisher of Demlist and the editor of Dem Daily, a political column dedicated to educating and informing the public about the Democratic Party, uh, its policies and politics. You can sign up for the column at www.demlist.com. The Twitter handle is The Demlist. Uh, Kim, welcome back to Deadline DC. Yep. Thanks for joining us again today. Thank you. Thank you. First of all, uh, tell us about what is No Labels. So No Labels is a group that was founded in 2010 by um, former Democratic consultant Nancy Jacobson, uh, along with her her husband Mark Penn, who's a pollster, um, very moderate, um, some questionably Democrat pollster. Um, initially, it was to promote bipartisanship. Um, they were instrumental in founding the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House, um, which has 64 members now. Uh, and facilitated meetings to bring the two parties together. There's also some that would say that this was also a vehicle for them as a couple with the original founders, um, sort of a power grab. Uh, so they have now, as started about two years ago, they started doing polling and researching on a potential third party candidate. Uh, obviously this caused a great deal of alarm. Uh, the, and they have now raised almost $70 million towards putting what they feel is a budget for putting uh, a third party candidate in every state in DC. Uh, on last Monday, they had sort of a debut town hall, common sense town hall with uh, Joe Manchin, Senator from West Virginia, who is currently facing serious opposition from Jim Justice. He's now 22% behind in the polls and has not announced his re-election or potential third party. Uh, Jim Huntsman, the former governor and ambassador, was also a part of this town hall, who's a Republican. Um, the founders, the founding chair is Joe Lieberman, who's a former senator and vice president. Manchin and Huntsman were a part of the original founding as well. Uh, then we also have former governor Pat McCrory, who is uh, a Republican 
Um, Dr. Benjamin Chavez, who's former CEO of the NAACP, and Governor Larry Hogan, um, former Republican from Maryland. Okay. Uh, well, my question is, uh, it seems to me, if you look at the national polls, uh, uh, President Biden and Donald Trump uh, as my former employer, the pollster Bill Hamilton used to say, tight as a tick on a hound dog. Um, now, and, you know, I mean, the last head to head I saw, which was done for the messenger, uh, which I write for now, uh, showed that uh, 44 for President Biden, uh, 44% for he who I care not to name, uh, and the other 12% undecided. Now, if you look at the undecideds, uh, they don't like Joe Biden very much. Right. Uh, they don't like Donald Trump very much. Uh, and my question is, uh, do you think uh, they would, uh, given that environment, uh, whether a third party candidate uh, like uh, Senator Manchin uh, or former Governor Huntsman uh, or somebody else, uh, would be a serious threat, you know, and my guess is if you look at those undecided voters, they hate Trump more than they hate Biden. So my impression is if in a two way race, uh, those undecided voters might drift towards uh, Biden because they hate Trump so much or they hate him more than they hate Biden. Uh, could a third party candidate uh, be a serious obstacle to Joe Biden's reelection campaign and open the door for Donald Trump? Absolutely. And that's that's what's setting off alarm bells everywhere. Um, as you mentioned, there's the June poll in BC, I guess it was 44 percent of those polled are open to a third party candidate. Uh, you know, our hope as Democrats is only that it is it, that it will be. Trump against Biden, as hard as it will be to tolerate. Uh, but Biden loses more with a third party candidate. Uh, and polls have shown that left and right, uh, unequivocally. This is the fear is that this ensures a second Donald Trump administration. Yeah, OK, well, that's a pretty scary thought uh, in itself. Uh, do you think uh, do you think uh, Joe Manchin will run for president? You know, I really don't know. Um, it's clearly, uh, he has said now that I think he's not going to announce until what, what his decision is until the beginning of that. But in the meantime, no labels is pouring in millions of dollars into polling and tracking the mood of the electorate to see. They have said that they are not, they have not made a decision on whether they're going to put up a third party candidate or not. And that will depend on uh, heavy investment in analysis and polling, but uh, it is it is the greatest threat to the, the Biden presidency without question. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. We're going to take a very short break for our radio listeners. If you're watching us on Twitter or Facebook, don't go away because we're stomping right on. Our guest in this half hour is Kimberly Scott, the publisher of Demlist. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. 
Our guest in this half hour is Kimberly Scott, the publisher of Dimless uh, and her cat. Uh, we are talking about, we talked in the first segment, we talked about, uh, uh, this, you're the other, we have another person's cat always shows up on the show. Um, uh, anyway, uh, we talked about uh, third party presidential possibilities in the first segment. In this segment, we're going to talk about uh, campaign finance. Uh, all the uh, presidential candidates uh, were obligated to file reports uh, for the to the Federal Election Commission by June 15th, uh, reporting uh, the amount of money they raised and spent. And so let's tend to spend some time talking about those. Uh, the first candidate uh, is the incumbent president, Joe Biden. Uh, did he uh, do well fundraising uh, so far this year? It was a much needed boost. Um, Biden had a $72 million haul and has $77 million cash on hand. So these finance reports are like reading someone's diary. And since for most of the candidates, uh, GOP field, uh, it's their first report, it gives us insight into how much they've raised, who is supporting them, you know, i.e. also endorsements. Of geographic base, how how uh, how deep is their support across the country? Small donors, which means grassroots supports and and votes, um, and most importantly, how effectively they're spending money or not. Hence, Ron DeSantis. So DeSantis was the big headline coming out of these reports. He well, let me ask you a question about DeSantis first. Uh, last week. Uh, I couldn't watch a cable TV show or read one of the political blogs uh, saying uh, how much uh, danger DeSantis' presidential candidacy uh, was in after getting off at, I think it's fair to say, a disastrous start. Uh, do, does his fun, do his fundraising numbers reflect that fact or not? They do. And this, this could be a pivotal pivotal. Uh, point for him. So he raised, he actually outraised Trump by a few million, but it was like 20.1 million. I think he has uh, uh, 9 million, 10 million um, cash on hand, but it's his burn rate, which is the significant part. He went through 40% of the money he drew, he brought in in the first six weeks without airing a single ad. He has twice as many campaign staff as Trump does. He recently let go of about a dozen staffers in a cost-cutting measure. Um, he, uh, a majority of his, or I think it's only 30% of his donors are small donors, small dollar donors, which is $200 or less. Uh, and, uh, and he spent over 600,000 on travel because he and his wife prefer to travel by private um, jet as opposed to most of the other candidates that were, are going commercially. And so his, it's set off a lot of uh, consternation amongst donors There's um, who are already concerned that he's running too far to the right of Trump, um, but who have some major donors who have started um, expressing publicly of their concerns about the viability of DeSantis's candidacy in the long run, unless he does a reboot, which he's supposedly already done a couple of times. 
Okay. By the way, if you are a former unemployed DeSantis uh, staffer and you have some time on your hands, remember to watch Deadline DC live every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, the other thing I gleaned uh, from uh, reading the stories about uh, DeSantis' report is since so much, uh, much of it came from big donors, uh, who cannot give to his campaign today because uh, anymore uh, because they've maxed out according to the federal campaign finance laws. Right. So you can give in a presidential, you can give to both the primary and the general at the same time. But money that's given to the general election cannot be spent unless you actually make it to the general. So in DeSantis's case, I think three million of the money he raised is earmarked for the general and can't be touched. So, okay. Uh, let's see. Well, let's uh, move on and talk about the former failed president, uh, his fundraising, uh, who I imagine he did a lot better with small donors uh, than Governor DeSantis did. He brought in uh, 17.7 million, I believe it is. That's right. Um, and 22.5 cash on hand. Uh, and, you know, there's a question whether um, Trump will even attend the debate. And an important part of this report, which I didn't mention, is it's the campaign. This is about uh, the campaign committees themselves. This does not include super PACs or outside donors. But it is the reports of the campaign committees, which is the basis for the qualification of the first debate, which is now just about a month, GOP primary debate, which is just about a month from now. So, uh, now, to qualify for that, I have to refer to notes for this. And the debate's on August 23rd. Third, okay. In, in Milwaukee. So to qualify, candidates must have a minimum of 40,000 unique donors to their principal campaign committee with at least 200 unique donors per state or territory in 20 states. Um, and then they also must poll at at least 1% in three national surveys or 1% in two national surveys in early states, like New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, et cetera. So, so far, less than half the field is qualified for that. So Trump, DeSantis, Haley, Ramaswamy, Scott and Christie, according to their campaigns, have met those qualifications. Notably, Pence has not. Ooh, that's sort of a come down from yeah. being vice president in the United States to not even being able to qualify for the Republican first Republican presidential debate. Yeah. And Trump has already met those qualifications, obviously, uh, given that he is, uh, what is it, 30 points ahead in Iowa, well, which was another thing to Santa's campaign to notice that they've been spending a lot of time flying out to the early primary states. But at the same time, he's at an all time low is 46 to 16. Something Trump, like that. Yeah, yeah. And then Scott's the next one, I think, at 11 percent. That was polling yeah. as of a couple of weeks ago. No, that was polling actually just that came out. So it's hard to use that as an excuse. Well, let me ask you another question uh, about an issue you raised. Uh, if you're uh, living in New Hampshire, Iowa now, uh, you have the opportunity uh, to watch commercials uh, extolling the virtues of uh, Donald Trump um, or Ron DeSantis, uh, and they are paid for independent uh, by independent groups, not the candidates. 
uh, and uh, they don't even have to, re some of them at least don't have to report where their contributions come from, which means, you know, Vladimir Putin pe could be funding the ads for all we know. Uh, we wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah. So what do we, you know, do the campaign, the official reports miss a lot since there is hundreds of millions of what's so-called dark money being spent on presidential campaigns? Yes, and that's what is not reflected in those reports. Uh, you have, so in 2010, a Supreme Court decision was made in something called Citizens United, and it basically took off the caps on fund, fundraising restrictions. It reclassified the role of corporations and out, outside organizations and presidential. So literally, you can spend unlimited amounts, millions and millions of dollars. One person could write a million dollars, I mean, a hundred million dollars. Um, on these candidates. So each one of these candidates have a super PAC. Um, you know, Donald Trump's super PAC raised, uh, I don't know, 25 million. Just, no, just one of his, one of his three super PACs raised 20 million in the last quarter. Um, DeSantis, who had uh, a treasure trove of 82.5 million in his gubernatorial account, which would cannot be transferred to presidential because it's state versus federal, but that 82.5 was transferred into a, a super PAC, which in turn can use that. And so it's it's very, it's very deceiving, but it, every single candidate has a super PAC. Um, there's other there's leadership PACs, there's joint committees, which the Biden campaign has been able to take advantage of. Uh, but essentially that means that they're, unless, until the courts change it, um, then you know there is no limit on on campaign spending. Uh, we'll overstate the case slightly. So anybody running for president or for the Senate or House for that matter can spend as virtually with the dark groups spend as much money as they can possibly raise on a presidential race. So much for uh, McCain Feingold. Right, and these don't. So some of these are reported. Will come out at the end of the month, um, but not all require reporting. Okay, uh, we're uh, out of time. I want to thank our guest, uh, Kimberly Scott, the publisher of Demlist. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about Demlist, go to www.demlist.com. Uh, I want to thank our first guest, CNN military analyst, uh, Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, uh, and also our crack executive producer, uh, Mark Grimaldi, who keeps me honest and the show running on time, neither of which is easy to do. We'll be back soon with another episode of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, until then, behave, but not so much. Uh, act like you'd be banned in Florida uh, if you, uh, if you uh, did behave the way you want. Thank you very much. Thank you.